It is a privilege of great proportion that we have to come together this morning. As I stand before you and look over the audience, we are so blessed with visitors today who've come our way, and for you, we're especially appreciative and thankful, and want to invite you to come back at any opportunity that may be yours to visit with us and be a part of our worship services here, any of our assemblies. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 10.30 for Bible study and worship respectively, at 5.30 Sunday afternoon, and then at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. We'd invite each and every one, if you can, visiting with us to come and be a part to a regular membership. How excited we are also to be able to come back as a family and to appreciate the goodness of our worship unto God and fellowship one with another. The meeting at Union Hill in which I and the family were a part this past week was certainly a blessed one, we feel. And we're appreciative to, for your prayers and for your encouragement of us in that effort. And we're certainly also appreciative uh, for your attendants who came and were able to, to fit that into your schedule. And as such, we also, though, have looked forward to coming back and being with our family here at Pippin. As you might well know, we've spoken of it now several times over the last week or so, the nature of the Bible Bowl and how that our young people are busily studying and making preparation for that. In fact, many of us have already prepared questions for them to utilize in their study and preparation. And to that extent, I have decided beginning today to begin a series of lessons discussing those books which they are also studying for the Bible Bowl. And so we'll begin today a series of lessons beginning in, in James and terminating in Jude a few weeks from now. As you might expect, given the number of chapters involved, that being some 21 total, we will not be able to look at a chapter at a time, but rather some of the major themes, some of the major prescriptions regarding each book, and that'll be our study over the next several Sundays beginning today. With that said, the title of the lesson today, as you might have noted from Brother Adam's reading taken from James 1 verse 5, has to do with the wisdom from above. As we'll see in just a moment, the idea, the topic, the theme of wisdom is a rather significant one in the book of James. And for that reason, I thought it pertinent for you and me to consider what is this wisdom that's being discussed, and perhaps more significantly, how is it to be obtained? With that said, some introductory thoughts could be very pertinent and helpful as we move through the study of this book of James today. In fact, if you and I simply pause to ponder a moment the nature of wisdom, we will be impressed by the fact that the theme, the very word itself, occurs so many times in the sacred text of the Bible. In fact, over 500 times the word wise or some derivative of it occurs in the King James Version of the Bible. That's Old and New Testament. 500 times. The, King James, the New King James Version has it over 450 times. Those ought to be impressive enough statistics to encourage us to keep in mind the fact that this wisdom of which the Bible speaks is so important that God mentions it that many times, and hence you and I ought to devote attention to not only understanding it, but acquiring it. And that we will study today. The whole notion of this wisdom as it appears to us. We might well recall that there is one book, perhaps among the 39 in the Old Testament, that sets before us the value and importance of wisdom. That book is Proverbs, among the various ones. For that book uses the word by far more than any other Old Testament book. But might we quickly say that it has well been noted that the book of James is the New Testament book of Proverbs. It is brief, albeit but five chapters, but oh, how powerfully James sets before you and me those issues related to constant, practical, daily application of the principles of godliness. 
In fact, as we in this lesson and the next one, next Lord's Day, we will notice so powerfully how that James leaves no thread of our life untouched. Everything from the language we utilize to the activities we engage in to the way we treat others in regard to prejudice or partiality, he covers all of them. You and I will do the same as we strive to lift ourselves to a higher plane and to live as those people most apprised in the eyes of our loving Heavenly Father. To note some of those ideas, might we then move and make consideration of this wisdom in light of the following set of ideas. May I suggest to you four lessons that we will strive to appreciate this morning. The first one, it would seem most naturally, would involve trying to define it. What do we mean by the wisdom of which James speaks? And once we have made note of it, then we will learn how to better apply it and to find ways in our life to appreciate and to make use of it. This wisdom from above. In James 3 verse 15, we find James's definition of wisdom. And as we make note of that definition, I have included for your consideration the rendering in the New King James Version of the Bible, which is the version that the questions are being made from. I realize that more often than not, I quote the King James Version, so that rendering there may not word for word read like the one you're holding. James 3 verse 15 in the King James reads as follows. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. James 3, verse 13. But notice that same rendering or wording in the New King James has it, Who is a wise man? Or who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. That New King James reading, as well as the King James one, emphasizes to you and me the incredible power available by virtue of that wisdom that man is able to find. But that wisdom, that wisdom that goes with understanding, how is it that James appreciates or defines it? As you might note in the comments I've listed for your consideration, James makes note there that that wisdom is basically this. It is that art in which a person shows good conduct in accordance to meekness and understanding. That is to say, that art, that disposition, that set of concepts and actions in which a person shows good conduct in accordance to both understanding as well as to meekness. James has said a great deal in a very few words. For in fact, the very nature and notion of that wisdom leads us to observe first and foremost that this wisdom involves conduct. The King James rendered it conversation, which means lifestyle in the Greek. This word conduct has to do with action. And hence, this wisdom of which James speaks is not merely some mental set of knowledge that's never applied. It is that idea, but it involves in a careful and remarkable fashion the application in the daily walks of life. What do you and I do every day? Not just Sunday or Wednesday, but what about tomorrow and Tuesday and Friday and Thursday and Saturday and, yea, even this afternoon? Are the conductions and the actions of our life in relation to this idea of meekness and wisdom of which James defines it? This notion of wisdom 
seems very pertinent and powerful to the ideas James has in mind for us. For notice, it also involves meekness. The very last statement, he affirms that these works are done. How are they done? Are they done in arrogance? Are they done in an attitude of self-serving? Are they done in a means by which a person is able to think that he or she is better for say than others? James makes note they're done in meekness. That word means humility. An attitude of lowliness and appreciation that he is an humble servant of God, thankful to be submissive to him, and thus that meekness that guides and directs and is a part of this wisdom is also a very vital and necessary accompaniment to it. Meekness. As you close one of the last statements on that screen, might we notice, as we shall see more clearly in a moment, that that good conduct is good by virtue of how God defines it. The world may call many things good, but that may not be what God calls good. This person, then, who seeks that wisdom from above, so guides and so directs his or her life so that the attitudes of godliness are not only found but found in abundance and they are pursued with meekness. Oh, how that should be a description of both my life and yours. This wisdom then, maybe in one final observation, isn't it remarkable how the Bible gives us so many clear examples of those who did not pursue wisdom as defined like this? In fact, in Luke, the twelfth chapter, as our Savior on that occasion addressed a question asked of him, it was a question that had to do with a person who had a grievance or request of Jesus in light of what his brother was doing. In light of that inheritance that this person requested, Jesus said, Man, who made me a judge and a divider over you? And at that moment, he noted in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And at that moment, our Lord proceeded immediately into a parable. That parable is rather familiar to us, but this individual, this man, was greatly blessed, so much so that his crops brought forth abundantly. In his desire to then address what to do with them, he decided to pull down his barns and build bigger ones. And notice his statement, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. But now is the point for our discussion this morning. What was the Lord's response to his pursuit? Was it wise? God himself directly said in the parable, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. We may well immediately conclude this man's pursuit was not according to the wisdom from above. It was in accordance to the wisdom that man may present, that wisdom that humans may think highly of, but God said, you are a fool. Isn't it amazing that you and I may well see on many occasions those who choose not to follow that wisdom from above, but rather the wisdom that comes from beneath, which interestingly enough leads us to our next point in the lesson this morning. We've noted so far the definition for wisdom from James 3.13. What about the next point? How valuable is this wisdom? And then nextly following that, what about the nature of where is this wisdom found? May we pause for a moment and say this. To all of us present, both young and old alike, notice with me, if you would, please, young people, especially carefully, 
regardless what the world may present, there is no wisdom of this world comparable to the wisdom from above. Listen to how the Word of God addresses that point. This wisdom of which we speak, this wisdom that James has presented, James, how valuable is it? How important is it? As James would make the point, and many other Bible writers too, let's begin back in Proverbs. In Proverbs 8, verse 11, the wisdom that the Scriptures lift up is more precious than rubies. Or later in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 16, it's more valuable than gold. Later we notice in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 16, it's more valuable than strength. This wisdom mentioned in the Scriptures, two verses later, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18, it's more valuable and precious than weapons of war. So far we've noted with regard to those highly prized items such as gold and rubies, such as those things related to strength in terms of bodily character or as well as even military, wisdom is more valuable than all of it. May we never forget then this fact that this wisdom is so highly prized that the Scriptures could also encourage us by commandment to obtain it. I've listed some Scriptures for your consideration In Proverbs 4, verse 5, we notice there the direct command, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not. That's something to be acquired and not forgotten. It is something to be obtained and never let slip away. Two verses later in Proverbs 4, verse 7, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. To reflect upon that is to reflect upon a rather dramatic statement. Wisdom is the principal thing. That means in comparison to the other matters, the other prescriptions, the other pursuits of life, they all pale in comparison to it. Wisdom is that which is far and away the most valuable and the most important. And as he closed the verse, with all thy getting, get this. Regardless then of the sacrifice that it may require of you and me, it'll be well worth it. Regardless of then the cost it may come to us to obtain it, oh, how valuable and how precious and how worth it that pursuit will be. The remarkable fact then is concerning these matters. Later, buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The procurement then of that truth and that wisdom And as we shall see in the lesson as it continues today as well as next Sunday, James will inform us in dramatic and immediate fashion some clear-cut ways of obtaining that wisdom. And thus, in light of Solomon's statements here in Proverbs, we should quickly employ them and never lose sight of their employment, never cease to do them, but rather to increase in our character of them day by day. The notion then of the very last statement on that screen If wisdom is the principal thing, and if it is to be acquired at all cost, is it not then fair to conclude that a life lived without it is lacking the most basic and the most crucial ingredient of it? And thus, is it not also fair to say that even once this life is concluded, eternity stands before, and how regretful shall it be? to there be present on judgment and to have found that all the pursuits of life were not in light of the wisdom from above, but were in light of the wisdom from beneath. Oh, at that point, how sad it would be to find that one has missed the principal thing. In light then of that principal thing, 
that takes us immediately to point three. Let's describe this wisdom more carefully. The book of James sets in chapter 3 before us so crucially the elements of this wisdom. I would ask that you ponder some of them with me. The terminology is so beautiful. For notice that in verses 13 and following of James chapter 3, we read about a wisdom that is from above. We also read, though, about a wisdom that's not from above. Our third point then to the lesson is, let's characterize and distinguish these two types of wisdom and make certain that in life we are pursuing the proper one. First, let's take them in the order that they are given to us. Let's read together James 3, verses 13 and following. And I'll read this from the King James Version. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In some of the comments that will follow, we will draw conclusions from that reading and present the thoughts in the New King James translation for the wording thereof. And so in light of the first point, let's notice that James makes note of a wisdom that's not from above. Specifically, verse number 15, this wisdom, the one of which he currently is speaking, is not from above. Immediately we note the wording implies that it is not originating with God. It does not flow from his precepts nor conscience. It is not a part of his command or will. This wisdom is not from above. But to say that immediately leads us to say, where then does it come from? Is it not interesting that verse 15, James says, it is earthly, it is sensual, it is devilish. In the Greek, the meaning is as follows. It is of the earth. Furthermore, it is worldly minded. Finally, it is demonical. This wisdom then of which James speaks, he says it's demonical. It rather finds its ultimate source not in that which is above, not in the one above, but rather in demonical nature we realize that Satan is the very God and leader of those demons who were present in earlier days and who are opposed to the character and power of God. This type then of wisdom is ultimately from Satan himself. It is he who authored it and who originates it. And as such, it will not be shocking to see some of the descriptions that follow. Because what does this type of wisdom exhibit? Isn't it fascinating in verse 14? But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, the New King James reads that bitter envy and self-seeking. Those are some of the things that this wisdom not only exhibits but pursues. Bitter envy and self-seeking. Is it not easy to see in light of that alone that those are evil, both of them? How many good things can be said about envy? Can you name even one? Of the type of envy that's presented in the Scriptures, how was it described in Proverbs 14.30? Envy is the rottenness of the bones. 
How much blunter could the scriptures have been? The rottenness of the bones? What good is able to come forth in terms of encouragement and edification from envy? In fact, as you notice, that goes along here with a prescription of other passages I've listed for your study. These evil things, in Acts 7 verse 9, what was accomplished there because of envy? As Stephen made that remarkable sermon to those who ultimately would stone him to death at its conclusion, at one point in it he said, speaking of Joseph, why was it that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers? James, or rather Stephen made note there, it was for envy. It was because they were envious of him, and as a result of that, that led them to do those despicable acts that they did. Envy. In Romans 1.29, we have there a listing of a number of items which are absolutely opposed to God. And in verse 32 of that chapter, Paul even note that these are worthy of death. Among that list are those that are full of envy. Envy is not a thing to be desired. And yet, as we notice, this wisdom from beneath actually encourages it. But that isn't all, for self-seeking is also mentioned. Self-seeking, placing oneself higher in repute and esteem above others than what is that which is approved of God. That is, placing oneself in a position to run roughshod or ignore the thoughts, considerations, and feelings of others, to only look at oneself. It is selfishness to the core. Is it not fair to say that this self-seeking, as is mentioned here, is again such an evil matter? How often does the New Testament encourage us not to look upon ourselves more highly than we ought to think? Romans 12, verses 2 and 3. And is it not a memorable thought to recur when we remember that Jesus was described in Philippians 2 in these words, "...let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." What was the point? What was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? Let us let Paul explain. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Paul's whole point as he began that beautiful statement was that Christ sufficiently humbled himself to divest himself of all the glory heaven had to offer him, and to take upon him the low form of human beings, as though it was in the flesh like you and me. Jesus humbled himself to that point. Is it not then the case that because Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, we too then should behave humbly, and to behave in a fashion not seeking self above all others? It's an interesting point to notice what these things produce. Verse number 16 For where bitter envy and self-seeking is, there is confusion in every evil thing. Let us re-emphasize it. Where these two things are, there is confusion in every evil thing. Our God is not a God of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, verse, verse 33. Furthermore, we appreciate that this confusion is thus that which brings about unproductivity. Take any group of individuals, be it the church or a club, even in a secular consideration. If there's confusion there, if there's failure to appreciate the realization of natural hierarchy and the accomplishment by virtue of offices, confusion reigns, there won't be much accomplished. 
There won't be much accomplished for the mission of that group. James said, where this wisdom from beneath reigns, there's confusion and there's every evil thing. We note then that this evil that is mentioned is, of course, directly opposed to that which God finds approved and pleasing, for He is not evil. In fact, He tempts no man with it. James 1, verses 13 and 14. To say that is to say this is the wisdom by far that's to be avoided. This wisdom from beneath has nothing good that can be said about it. James has no compliment to it. He presents no thought that makes it worthwhile. It is to be absolutely shunned and avoided. Perhaps one final note on that screen. The wording that is used there in verse number 16. That word confusion means disorder. Just the opposite of orderliness. And furthermore, that word that's presented as every evil work reminds us of the disturbance that comes along with following that which is from beneath. At this point, what about the other wisdom? We noted that James mentions two types. This wisdom's from beneath. What about the wisdom from above? You might remember that was the title I gave to the lesson this morning. How very opposite these two wisdoms are. This one is directly that which follows the guidance and direction of the God of heaven. And as such, it truly is from above. What about its source? Wisdom is from the Lord, Proverbs 2 verse 6. Proverbs 9 verse 10 states it in these things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you and I want to be wise, we must first appreciate the fact that it comes by virtue of God. It does not come by happenstance. It doesn't come by means of accident. It'll come by virtue of the activity produced and following the pursuits of God. But oh, how rich we read here in James 3. What else about this wisdom? In addition, verse number 17. So many words given in description, and perhaps one could preach an entire sermon on each one, but let's briefly note them. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. This wisdom is pure. Isn't purity a notable quality in any, ray, in any way in which it occurs? We desire purity in so many ways. Parents encourage their children to live lives of purity. God encourages all of us to do the same. That word pure means innocent and holy. We are admonished time and again to remember that because God is holy, we are supposed to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 That holiness that then is present in the purity of our lives should guide us to shun that wisdom from beneath. We should avoid it. We should not then participate in those things that the world concludes and espouses as being wisdom from beneath. You and I, as those followers of God, have a higher calling than that. Purity. Paul expressly told Timothy, Keep thyself pure. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22. Do you and I then daily strive to think, say, and act in ways that uphold purity? The fact then that we are to keep ourselves from that which is evil, abstain from every appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. But in addition to purity, we note that this wisdom is peaceable. That means peace-loving, lovers of peace. The Scriptures remind us that our Saviors were certainly of that character. Ought not then we be the same? 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. One of those beatitudes, the lovers of peace. The impressive nature of peace as it is occurring in my life and yours will lead us to understand that that is a peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4, verse 7. It's a peace the world doesn't fully appreciate, for the wisdom from beneath can never produce that kind of peace. But the wisdom from above has it as a natural byproduct, for this wisdom is peaceable. Some passages and scriptures that guide us in that way. Notice with me in 1 Peter 3, verse 11. Another one of those books that falls in the Bible Bowl discussion this year. There we are told to ensue peace, that is to follow it, pursue it, greatly with great energy. But in addition to peaceableness, we're also told it's gentle in the King James. The statement on the screen reminds you that that gentleness means considerate and forbearing. Do you and I then exhibit forbearance one to another? Do we understand that we are commanded to bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ? We each are, in fact, of a disposition to draw closer to what God would have us to be. But our individual opinions are such that we will differ on matters. But when it comes to truth, there is to be a complete harmony, a full appreciation that God's truth is not divided. When we thus deal in matters of opinion, do we forbear one another? We're commanded to in Colossians 3.12, forbearing one another in love as we bear with each other. Doesn't that lead us to the next listed point, which is in the King James, easy to be entreated? In the New King James, willing to yield. There are times when we understand, of course, the absolute necessity to be willing to yield. My opinion is not what will get anybody to heaven, and that's the same that is true for you. When then my opinion or my life is not found to be in harmony with the Bible, and a kind Christian friend shares with me, perhaps bluntly, the fact that changes need to be made, I need to be willing to yield. Is that not then hand in hand with repentance? We are told in Luke 13, 3, "...but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." Repentance is a change of mind. And that change of mind leads to or produces a change of heart, a change of action. The recognition then is that we that follow that peace from above are willing to yield when truth is at stake and when we find ourselves opposed to it. That being willing to yield is followed by being full of mercy and good fruits. We aren't stubborn. We aren't those who are uncaring and unloving. We're full of mercy and good fruits. When others look at my life or yours, could they well describe us as being full of mercy and good fruits? Could they describe us as people of compassion and care, people of concern, and those who are interested in his or her fellow man, those whose life is sufficiently adequate to sustain that, that they're said to be full of it? There are many things that one can be full of in this world. We should be full if we're following the peace from above, that wisdom from above, of these things that are of mercy and good fruits. And the verse hastily concludes by noting, without partiality, that means we do not behave in prejudice. We do not behave in favoritism. It is such that in the words of 1 Timothy 5.21, do nothing by partiality. 
we open our arms with respect to the character of the goodness of God, doesn't matter the color of the skin, doesn't matter the ethnic background or origin, all are in need of the gospel. And as we shall see in our lesson next Lord's Day, James will especially address those that are rich. Sometimes they who monetarily can discriminate against others because they are not rich, but yet the one with money is. James has much to say to those in that situation. He notes even here without partiality. The wisdom from above does not base its ultimate and characteristic reality on that which is partial. Finally, without hypocrisy. Genuine, real, that which is understood to be utterly sincere. I've listed at the bottom some passages that encourage all of us to adopt those characteristics in all of our lifestyles. We mentioned Luke 13, 3. Perhaps finally we might note 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, where we must possess an unfeigned faith, a faith that is genuine and real, not, hip- not hypocritical, not living one day on Sunday and then a wholly different way on Monday. We are urged to be constant in our service to God. Having looked then at these two wisdoms, is it not self-evident that the wisdom from above is the one to seek? And that quickly leads us to this last point of the lesson. If that wisdom from above is the one to seek, the question is, how is it obtained? In what way do I acquire it? Can I buy it with money? Can I find it in the local self-help book here in Cookville? Could I perhaps obtain it by virtue of discussion with the right person? It's entirely fair to note that James also informs us how that's to be found. And so it is that as we look back to James chapter 1, verse 5, we remember that this source is, of course, from God. But then in verse 5 of chapter 1, which was the text for our reading today, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What a beautiful text. We thus have learned that this wisdom from above is vital to our eternal salvation, and it's vital to our appropriate and proper life on earth. How is it to be obtained? He says, if anyone lacks it, ask of God. That person thus, upon asking of God, He has promised that God is able to give to all men liberally, and what's more, He shall give it to those who ask. At this point, let us then for the last few points of the lesson comment on what it means to ask of God. How do we thus obtain this wisdom? Given that God is so liberal in terms of being able to express and answer prayer, He's infinite in power, He's infinite in greatness, and He certainly can give that which is requested. But James chapter 1 sets before us some powerful points about how to request it. Notice that that wisdom from above is able to be presented in such greatness that it reminds us of the scene of Solomon in 1 Kings 3. When Solomon began his reign on that occasion, God came to him in a vision and said, Ask anything you want, Solomon, and I'll grant it. Solomon did not ask for great riches physically, nor did he ask for military victories, nor did he ask for length of life. What he wanted was a wise and understanding heart. He wanted wisdom. We might remember God gave him that wisdom. In fact, in abundance more so than any other human that has ever lived. 
But notice that that liberal nature of God's gift reminds us here that God says again that He gives to all men liberally. Furthermore, in verses 6 and following, we're told how we must ask. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. You and I, if we are to have this wisdom from God, we may ask, but we must ask with complete belief, without wavering. For isn't it amazing that verse 7 says, Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. We must then not waver. We must believe in the character of God's greatness and the capability that He has of presenting and blessing us with what we've requested, namely that wisdom from above. And thus in our prayer we must ask in faith. We must ask not doubting. But He isn't finished either, for in verse 8 He notes that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. God in His Scriptures gives us great assurance that His wisdom from above is what we need, and we thus can have that when we approach Him properly. That leads us to wonder about our prayers. What about my prayers and yours? Do we ask in faith the way that we ought? Later in this same book in James chapter 5, James will tell us about a man who earnestly prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain. For three and a half years it didn't rain. And then when he prayed again for it to rain, it did. Do you and I have the kind of faith that would prompt us to pray to the God of heaven with assurance, not just a sense of doubt or hopefulness, but absolute assurance that the God of heaven will hear our prayers and respond in liberal character to our request? As we'll see in chapter 4, perhaps next week, we need to again ask in faith and leading that, to ask without that would appreciate we could well ask amiss. Perhaps as we conclude our lesson this morning, we have noted that it is our job to pursue the wisdom from above. And to fail in that means we have missed everything. In conclusion, what about your life today and mine? Are you following the wisdom from above or the wisdom from beneath? If it's the latter that is the answer, make a change today. Do not wait any longer, but even in a moment as we stand and sing a hymn of encouragement, make that change today. You've noted the blessings that come with the wisdom from above, but you've noted the evil and the terribleness that comes from the wisdom that's beneath. Shun that wisdom from beneath. Turn aside from it. Have no more to do with it. And pursue that wisdom that comes from God. Open His Scriptures. Let Him guide you by His revelation. And day by day you'll grow in strength. And you will come to be a person wiser as each day passes as you become more knowledgeable and applicable of those things in the Word of God. Today, if we could assist anyone, whether an alien sinner in need of initial obedience to the gospel, thus in need of repentance, confession, and baptism, or one who's in need of rededication of your life, we'd be happy to aid you in either of those ways today, the second being by prayer. And if you need to let that be known, this is a convenient time even now while together we stand and while we sing.